has a name. His name is Jesus. It's not hope in a pill, hope in a philosophy. If I just change my mindset, I'll have better vibes and better hope. It's not hope in hope. It's, it's hope in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. He brings us life. He forgives us of our brokenness. He puts us back together again. That's hope. And we have hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Listen, if you're here today and you're watching online today, we're so glad you're a part of our gathering. We had somebody in our last gathering that watches every week from Kansas City. They drove down to be a part this week. So we're glad to have them, those watching online, a part of our family as our family has grown through COVID in more ways than one. We got a lot of COVID babies. We'll talk about that later. But uh, anyway, hey, if you're here today and you're struggling in the Hope Factory, okay, you're struggling in where, hey, I'm struggling in this area. I need somebody to pray for me. We take prayer seriously. We're going to pray right now. But here's a card in the seat back pocket in front of you. Take that, fill that out, drop it in the offering boxes on the way out, on the way out of the building today or way out of this room. And there's two boxes on each side. You can drop it in there and we will pray specifically for you. If you're watching online, text GPC Connect to 97000. And even if you're in the room, you can do that. And let us know how we can pray for you. But let's go to the Lord together in prayer right now. Father, we thank you that we are not out wandering in this world looking for hope in a world of a pandemic, in a world of political upheavals, in a world of, uh, of just disorder and disharmony. That, Lord, we have hope. Hope is in the name and the person of Jesus. And that we all stand here today in on Easter Sunday, recognizing that life, hope, joy, peace, reconciliation with God all comes through Jesus Christ and through him alone. So Lord, cause us to pause in the midst of it all. And more than think about eggs and, and photos and family photos and pastels and whatever else, Lord, help us to think about Jesus and all that it means to be in a relationship with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Y'all can be seated. Welcome again to Grace Point. If this is your first time with us, uh, we welcome you here. Uh, like that song, I'm so glad we sang it. When, when uh, Taylor mentioned that that's what we were going to be singing, I was like, yes, hallelujah. Because I like a song. I like messages in a song. I, I appreciate art or whatever it may be. And music is a form of art. I, whenever there is a clear message behind it. I, I, I don't like to look for hidden messages. And when I hear hope has a name, his name is Jesus. You can't get much more succinct and simple and clear than that. And there's great other songs that we sing, have sung for years and years and years that have such incredible messages. John Tyson is a pastor in New York City, Manhattan area, uh, went to a conference recently and was speaking at this conference. And right before he got up, they were singing these songs. And one of those was one of those songs that you just like, it's just sacrosanct to even touch it. And that's Amazing Grace. It's, it's just a beautiful song song, but when you understand the history behind it, that's when it really begins to jive and, and, and make sense. But they changed some of the words to the song. So this is what the song changed to, and then I'll talk about what it was. So amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. While that is a true statement, 
If you're a child of God, he has saved a soul like you. That's not what John Newton wrote. If you know the story behind, John Newton was a slave trader as early as 17 years of age. He was working on a slave trade ship, grew up into that. That's all he knew, becomes a slave trader captain of ships, multiple ships. That's how he made his money. That was his livelihood until one day he had this incredible encounter with Jesus and realized in all of the brokenness of his life that he was not such a good fella and that he actually became one of the greatest advocates for the abolition of slavery. So an incredible story, but that's not how he wrote it. He did not write Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. He actually wrote it. When he wrote it out, he said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wow. Not exactly a warm, fuzzy feeling when you call yourself a wretch. But that's what he felt. And in fact, you almost have to go backwards sometimes before you can go forward in life. And I think what John Newton did is he did just that when he wrote, saved a wretch like me. He had to go back into the darknesses and the recesses of his own brokenness. And he had to go, okay, that's who I was. But thank God for the amazing grace so undeserved that has rescued me out, caused the blind eyes to now see. And that's the story. John Newton hears that, and it's like his unsettling for him. He's getting ready to speak, and they think, okay, I can, I can get over that, because it's a true statement, but it's not the full depth of the message of that song. They keep singing. The next song they go to is Christ Alone. Oh, you can't mess up Christ Alone. It's Christ Alone, right? Uh, again, a fairly new song, but this is the way it was originally written. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Some people have decided that, hey, you know what, talking about the wrath of God, talking about the the wretchedness of myself, doesn't create warm fuzzies, isn't very nice. And so let's, let's tweak it a little bit. Let's take it out and let's take out the phrase, God was satisfied with his wrath, okay? And let's change it till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now again, true statement, but not truth in its original intent. Listen, we have to go backwards before we go forward. We have to have Good Friday before we can have Easter. We have to embrace the brokenness of our own soul before we can live in the power of the resurrection. We have to. It's a must, but we live in a cancel culture where if you don't like it, you cancel it. If you don't like it, you get rid of it. If you don't like it, you tweak it. If you don't like it, you change it. If you don't like it, you cancel them. You unfollow them. You block them. If you don't like, that's the culture, cancel culture that we live in. The problem with you canceling the cross because it's too gruesome, because it's the wrath of God and it's coming down on, 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 his, on this person, Jesus, when you cancel the cross, you have to subsequently cancel the resurrection. When you cancel the resurrection, you cancel the even reason for Jesus even existing and coming to this earth. You must, you cannot cancel the cross. You've got to walk through the cross to ever make it to an empty tomb. You've got to get there. I've got to get there. And it's whenever I come back here to the cross and I realize and I experience Jesus as my Savior, my Rescuer, my Redeemer, 
When I look at my life, my story, my own thing, I was eight years old whenever I gave my life to following Jesus. I can remember on Fifth Street in Rogers, sitting down at the kitchen table with my mother, her literally leading me in a prayer and asking Jesus into my life. What was I at eight? I was a brat is what I was at eight. I was lying, cheating, stealing, whatever I could do. I was just a brat, okay? But even in my bratness, if that's a word, I realized something wasn't right with me and I needed Jesus to make something right with me. And he saved me on that day in March and he has been saving me ever since and he ultimately will save me in the end. So Jesus is my savior. He is my rescuer. He is my redeemer. And that's how I know Jesus. I also know Jesus as my Lord. Now I know that's not exactly the phrase we want to throw around. Lord up here, peasants down here, and we're kind of the peasants. Erase that from the, the, the schema of your mind. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, when Jesus is referred to in Scripture, he's referred to as Lord more often than he's referred to as Savior. So when I understand Jesus as my Savior, I must also come behind and understand Jesus as my Lord. But when I think about Lord, I think about leader, coach, guide, counselor, shepherd, in fact, a verse, a passage that I go to so often, sometimes when I don't even know what to pray, but I'm in that shepherding moment, I'm in that decision-making moment, I'm in that point where I'm needing to make a, a decision, and what's the decision, what's the right decision? I just start praying, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. So when my soul is tired and beat down and I'm needing direction, the Lord is my shepherd. And, and, and though, even though he leads me in paths of righteousness, I've got to make lots of decisions. I've got to go here. I've got to go here. This is, the, this is the good decision or this is the best decision. And sometimes it's really hard to distinguish between the two. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. I don't know about you, but I've had two family members pass away because of COVID this past year, an uncle and a great aunt. And so COVID's real. And when you walk through the valley of shadow of death, and some of y'all had somebody even closer to you. When you walk through the valley of shadow of death, you don't want to walk it alone. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is with me. I need the Lord. I need him to shepherd and guide me and counsel me and coach me through life. I need him to rescue me. I need him to lead me. I also need a friend. And when you look at all the different descriptions of who Jesus is in Scripture, one of those that doesn't get a lot of play, because it's only mentioned a couple of times, but it's that Jesus wants to be our friend. He wants to be relational with us. He wants to be a, a, a companion with us, not just a religious symbol that we pull off the shelf a couple of times a year and weave into our life for some ritual practice or something like that, but he's literally a friend that walks with you through life. If you have your Bibles, open to John 15. In John 15, it's a, it's a passage of scripture where uh, again and again and again, it will refer to Jesus, or Jesus will refer to the relationship that he wants to have with us. And he uses the word, translated the word, abide or remaining. I don't know how your Bible is going to translate it, but it's actually the Greek word meno. 
Not minnow, you put on a lure and you put it out in the water and you catch a fish. Not minnow, like that. It means to abide, to remain, to continue with. 40 plus times, I think it's 45 times throughout the Gospel of John. That's 21 chapters. You do the math, that's more than averaging two times a, a chapter. But if you go to concentrated passage of Scripture that has the word minnow more than any other, you're going to go to John 15. And he's going to constantly be saying like, hey, let's abide together. Hey, let's remain together. Hey, let's continue together. Because if you abide in me and I abide in you and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it will be done. It's this abiding relationship. I could spend an entire series of messages just on what it means to abide. But a part of what it means to abide is to be a friend and to have a friend and to know that Jesus is pursuing a love relationship with you that is real and personal. It's not, again, some religious duties out there. It's not just some religious uh, cosmic God up there ready to blast you the moment you start having fun. He's actually wants to be a friend who walks with you and, and helps you and guides you and guides me through life as a friend who remains, who abides, who continues. But the thing is, as you go into John 15, about in the belly of the whole thing of John 15, about in the middle part, he literally talks about what happens whenever we're abiding with him, when we're remaining in him. We're going to have a love that's going to help us love others. We're going to be good here vertically. That will help us be good here horizontally. So look at John 15, verse 12. It says, this is my commandment that you love one another. Easier said than done. When you've got some of the people in my life that I I have in mine and you have in yours. But how are we to love them? As I have loved you. Jesus sets the bar. He gives us the blueprint. He gives us the standard. He gives us the hallmark. What, what, What is love like this supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like the kind of love that he had for us. And what kind of love is that? It is a relational love. Not an autocratic love, a relational love. What, are the, what does it mean to, to be a friend of Jesus? To have a relationship with Jesus? There are three things that we're going to see in this passage. One is that Jesus gives us more than we deserve. When Jesus is your friend, mark it down. This is, the, this is just the reality of the relationship. And again, emphasis on relationship today, that you're going to get more than you deserve in that relationship. And that's really not fair to God. But think about it like this. Let's bring it back into this secular world, into our everyday life. Relationships are built on math. I don't know if you know that, and I hate math. It's real simple math in the beginning, right? Boy meets girl. Boy likes girl. One plus one equals two. Easy math. It gets complex after that. It gets real complex when you get married. Because then there's missing equations. That's called algebra. And you have to figure out what the missing equation is in the middle of it. And then there's fractions and, and percentages and trigonometry. You got geometry. You got the whole complex math uh, arena that enters into the relationship side. And, and one of those is percentages where some people get married and they think in terms of 50-50. Hey, if I give 50 and they give 50, that equals what? 100. Or it cancels each other out. 
And that's more like it. I'm telling you, relationship math is hard. Because really what relationship math is supposed to look like, it's 100%, 100%. I'm giving 100%, they're giving 100%. That's real relational math. But relational math gets really hard because if you've not seen that model, if you've not walked in that, if you've not experienced that, then you might go into it. But there are times in Lori and I's relationship when all she has to give is 25%. So what's going to happen to the other? If I'm only giving 50 and she's giving 25 I, what is, is when she's given 25%, that's a hundred percent of what she can give. And what I need to do in the relationship is make up the 75% to make it whole. Now, now the, the real realization is that's a constantly moving target, moving on life. But problem is, is that some people struggle in the relationship math area because those who are always giving, but never receiving This leads to an enabling kind of relationship, and that's unhealthy. And then there's those who are always taking, always demanding, always requiring, but never giving. That's a narcissistic relationship, and that's unhealthy. Relationship math is hard. How do you figure it out? How do you do it? It's really hard. In fact, we constantly call a tutor in to help us, and we're having a tutor come in. In a few weeks, Gary Thomas is going to be back for the third time with Grace Point. He's going to come in on Saturday night, Saturday night, special event. We're going to have it here. And it's going to be Dr. Thomas talking about when to walk away. Not an easy topic to talk about. But there are sometimes, and not just relationship, marital or anything, romantic kind of relationship. Sometimes it's a sibling relationship. Sometimes it's a parent-child relationship. Sometimes it's it's, it's a relationship on the job. When is it okay to walk away from a biblical perspective? Because sometimes you have deficits in your math relationships. Then on Sunday morning, we're going to flip the tide. We're going to come back. Hey, who wants to add value to your relationship? Who wants to see your relationship multiply in the, in, in the satisfaction factor? In that, in that area, we're going to talk about cherish. His book, Cherish, that came out about two years back. We were scheduled to have him last year, and then, of course, COVID happened. He's going to come. He's going to talk about Cherish. Again, all these you can sign up for. Be a part of both. Be a part of one. Bring a friend who, who you think is in a toxic relationship right now or needs some freedom and clarity to boundaries in their life or whatever, or, or bring them back for that, again, Sunday morning and Sunday night for the others. All of this to say relationship math is hard. And how is it that I do relationships well? When you look at our relationship with Jesus, it is a total imbalance. Jesus steps into the relationship, listen, 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 and gives 100% of himself. 100%. Look at verse 13. Greater love has no man than this, There's no higher love, there's no greater love, there's no higher standard of love than this, that someone laid down his life for his, what's the last word? Friends. Jesus is prophesying his own death. He's saying, I'm going to lay down my, they're not seeing it, they're not registering it, right? but that's what he's doing. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm going to be in this relationship with you. I want us to abide together in this relationship. I want us to continue to remain in this relationship. But let me tell you this, as a friend, I'm going to give my 100%. I'm going to lay it all out there. And when you give your life, you pretty much have given everything you got. A hundred percent. What do we give Jesus back? 
Well, if you read Isaiah, Isaiah says we give him our filthy rags. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. You read Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, and you find that not only that, but God commends his love toward us in that while we were still broken, in that while we were still wretched, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on to say, therefore we have now been justified by his blood, so the blood is necessary. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Yes, the wrath of God does come into play. But the great thing is, is that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus so that we could be in a relationship with God. I'm telling you, in a relationship with Jesus, you get more than you deserve. I get more than I deserve. But number two, he gives us an identity. He gives us a new identity, a solid identity, an identity that can't be taken from us. And I don't know if you realize this, but identity is a struggle nowadays. We're struggling on the struggle bus when it comes to identity. People have jobs. Their identity is their job. All they know, they, they do this kind of work. They, their identity is their paycheck. They get paid this amount of money, therefore they live in this kind of house, therefore they spend this kind of money, therefore they, they go on these kind of vacations, therefore they drive this kind of car. If you take away their job and you take away that, that level of income and all of a sudden the game changes, all of a sudden they're lost into who they are and who, how they fit into this world. You talk about social media. Some people identify with social media as their identifying marker. How many likes, how many followers, how many people are, 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 are forwarding out, sharing their, 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 their stuff, how many are commenting. Their identity is wrapped up in their social media. Some people's identity struggles are with their gender. The dysphoria, the struggle. And listen, I don't say that in judgment. I say that in empathy and sympathy. That I, I, I get it. That we're struggling with defining who we are. We've left self to define self. And when self defines self, no telling what we're going to call ourselves. No telling what we're going to feel about ourselves. We struggle with this area. 24 hours ago, I'm sitting in my recliner at home, finalizing the thoughts on this message. And you know what? I am struggling with the voice recording in my head that I've heard for 50 years of my life. Mike, you're dumb. Mike, you're, you, you can't stand up in front of all those people. Mike, you're going to mess something up. Mike, it's going to be an embarrassment. Mike, you're, I'm hearing that 24 hours ago. I'm, I'm praying it out. Get out, get out. Because I've heard the recording in my head. Mike, you're dumb. Mike, you're stupid. Dyslexia is something that kind of just messes with you all throughout your life. And you don't ever get over it. And so what am I saying? When I let self define self, no telling what I'm going to get. When I let Jesus define me, that's a different story. Take your Bibles and look how Jesus defines us. Gives us an identity. You are my friends. He, there he is. There's your identity. And he's going to say it once. He's going to say it twice. Because why? Because the voice recording in our head is saying something else. Oh, yeah, but Mike, you don't understand. Oh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. And so listen, he's going to say it twice. You are my friends. If you do all that I command you, no longer do I call you servants. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer bound. You're no longer locked into this other lifestyle. The servant does not know what the master is doing, but I call you friends. When Jesus looks at you, if you're a child of God, you know what he calls you? He calls you friend. 
not subject, not betrayer. He calls you friend. Let your identity, let Jesus become your identity definer, not self-defining self. So we get more than we deserve when Jesus is our friend. We get our identity and we also get our value. Who are, what are we worth in this world? In a day when suicide is at epic proportion, people are struggling with value. I, I just need to go away. The value conversation and people's recordings in their heads is, is overwhelming. And I can say that from a pastor who's done funerals of suicides in the past year. What determines my value? Well, let's take it out of personal and let's take it into the business world. What determines the value of something? Well, there's several things. If you had economics in college like I had, I can remember one thing from that class. It's the law of supply and demand. Okay? If there's a big demand and there's a little supply, prices go up. If there's a lot of supply and low demand, prices go down. Simple, 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 right? There's a second thing that will determine the value of something. It's quality. Okay? Is it broken? Or is it working? Is it polished? Is it in mint condition? Or is it in moderate condition? So again, condition, value uh, plays into that. There's a third one. And the third one's a mystical one. It's when an outsider looks at something and appraises it as a certain value. And the somebody speaks into that is a legitimate somebody. Okay? So... What is it about us that creates value in us? Is it supply and demand? Look around. There's a lot of us. All right? Let me show you one small group in our church and the number of kids, 22 kids in this one. Listen, we don't have a problem at Grace Point Church with reproduction. All right? We got supply. The supply chain is working quite well. And a couple of COVID babies in that mix right there. So it's not supply and demand. There's a lot of people out there. It's it's not the quality of our life because if you know my rap sheet and if I knew your rap sheet, then the reality is is that we all have a rap sheet. If we were, again, a product in a store, we'd be the uh, appliance store. We'd be the scratch and dent section in the back of the showroom because we're all scratched and dented some ways. So it's not supply and demand. It's not the quality. So... The third, think about this. Let me take you to Nebraska. Let me take you to Omaha, Nebraska. Let us walk up to McDonald's in Omaha, Nebraska. Every day of the week when there's this one man named Warren who will go in and buy his $2.61 cup of coffee and buy his two sausage patties. I know, yuck. It's the first thing that comes to my mind. Uh, Two sausage patties from McDonald's, and that's he eats that every day. He's lived in the same house for 50-plus years. Anybody know his name? Warren Buffett. Now, that may mean nothing to you because he's a pretty nondescript individual. He's not flashed across all the headlines. But as of last week, his net worth was valued at $97.6 billion, that's with a B, dollars. One of the richest men in America. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought too. <laughs> Spoken my language. And he's eating sausage patties from McDonald's. Man, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. 
when Warren Buffett makes an investment, it changes the economy. He's 90% of his investments are in 10 companies. 90% in 10 companies. His company, Berkshire Hathaway, literally asked the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, that when Warren buys into a company, don't make it public. Because if you make it public, everyone else is going to buy into it. It's called literally, you go Google it when you get home, the Warren Buffett effect. That when Warren Buffett buys into something, it changes the value of that something. How does that pertain to Jesus? Because when Jesus looks down on humanity and he's looking at all the brokenness, what does he do? He enters into flesh and blood and walked on this earth and went to a cross and died on a cross and went into a grave and came back to life again and told his disciples this, you did not choose me, I chose you. See, our value is not our scratch and dent, is not in the supply and demand. Our value is because Jesus looked at you and me and said, I want you to be my child. That's our value. So why Jesus? I can give you three reasons. Because you're going to get more than you deserve. You're going to get a new identity. And you're going to be valuable. He said in that last verse, he said, you did not choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you. Not only did he chose us and appointed us, but he appoints a future for us that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide, the same word minnow, so that where, what, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Notice the relationship. See, when Jesus is our friend, we get far more than we deserve. We get an identity and we get value. Jesus got all kinds of flack when he was doing his ministry walking on the earth. But one of those things is whenever he would hang out with the, with the lowlifes, what we would call lowlifes today, betrayers, sinners. Literally, it says in Luke chapter 7, it says that the Son of Man was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors doesn't mean he worked for the IRS. Tax collectors meant that they were betrayers. They worked for Rome. They were in Rome's hip pocket. And so therefore, they were selling out their friends, their family members, their neighbors to rip them off and to give over their money to Rome. And Jesus is hanging out with them. Did they deserve to be hung out with? No. Was their identity good? No. Was their value worth anything? No, they were betrayers. But Jesus added value, gave them more than they deserved, and... He gave him a new identity. Matthew, who wrote the gospel, was one, the, one, was one of the tax collectors that changes his life to following him. I want you to turn to somebody next to you right now and say, you are chosen by Jesus. Turn to him. What gives you value is not your own value. What gives you value is that you are chosen by Jesus. So when I come back to that song, Amazing Grace... And I think about it, when I sing it, and I don't sing it much, but when I sing it, I sing it like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved 
lived a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now 